So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. And so some things we standardize, but even though they'll look different for every client. So we bought some standardized things in. And and the pitch is, you know, you'll, you get to add the flair on the unique things for this client because that's the artists do. They want to keep going. And we do have to constantly watch that because, you know, one of our, one of our, we, we operate under core values and one of them is profitability. And it's probably in there because artists will just, you know, keep adding and adding and adding. And so we have time goals. We have project boards. We have a visual workplace. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Betty Brennan. Betty, thanks for making time. You bet. Thanks for having me. So for people who don't know about Taylor Studios and making the Inc. 500 list, can you tell us about what you do? Sure. The brief thing is we plan, design, and build exhibits. So we create things that inspire people. A lot of what we do is is scenic fabrication. We make immersive environments. So if you've been to the D-Day Museum or Adler Planetarium or Smithsonian and ever walked past those, someone has to design and build those things. (laughs) So that's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, so I'm kind of a nerd for museums. Like I, you know, because of being in the finance industry have traveled the world a little bit. And whenever I get a chance, like whenever I go to a city, I'm typically like kind of meetings morning tonight, but I, I always make time to either go to whatever the, the biggest art gallery is or the biggest museum is in that city. So nice. Do you ever so think I, about like someone had to do that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, originally I'm an art school dropout. So I'm always looking at those things. Right. <laughs> uh-huh. But you know, like I've, I've been to play, I was looking down your list and going through your bunch of photos and I, you know, I've been to the midway. I've been to some of the places where you guys have done installations. Cool. And so I, I really didn't understand understand what a big industry that is until I'd spoken at the Young Presidents Organization. And it was a guy, one of the guys in the group, his company runs the gift shops at like many, many museums around the world. It's Uh actually like, it's a big business. It is. It really is. Yeah. More people attend museum. Well, maybe not in 2020, but they attend museums and they go to uh, national sporting events, you know, football, basketball, um, baseball combined. There's more attendance at museums. So it is a, it's a huge thing. And we do a lot of nature centers, visitor centers. We do university exhibits. We've done some exhibits for corporations, even, you know, assisted living. We did like history walls for them. So our, our clients are even more diverse than, than just museums, but people understand when you say museum exhibit, they understand what you're talking about. So that's how we describe it. Yeah. Congratulations on making Inc. Magazine's top 100 female founders, by the way, as well as I know you've made Inc. 5000 a couple of times and Inc. 500. I think 
as I was doing some research on you, one of the things that was interesting to me was that as you were starting your business, you said, I'm going to make it on that list. And 12 years later, you did. Can you yeah. talk about that for a minute? Sure. Yeah. Actually, I was just a sophomore in college. So maybe only 19 years old. And I brazenly told my future business partner, he was the artist, I'm the business side, I'm going to make that list. So I was already thinking entrepreneurial, you know, then. And so, yeah, roughly 10, 12 years later, we actually did it. So I'm a goal setter and set those uh, future vision type of things. So it was a pretty cool win. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. You know, I feel like I feel like in the world of goals, goal setting, there can be almost like a, you know, a wishing aspect to it. You know, some motivational speaker says, just write it down and everything will be fine or something, right? Yeah. And so in some ways, sometimes it gets discounted by the people who, who make, you know, overreaching statements that are not realistic. Uh -huh. And yet, when you think about the people that really get things done, it wasn't by accident either. Can you, right. can you just talk about like goal setting and how you think, you know, just the role it played for you in, in going from being a small business to being, you know, an award-winning business? Yeah, I think, I think it's really important. Not that I hit them all. I mean, I, I've made some brazen ones that I didn't hit, but at least it gave me a path, you know, a vision. And I think sometimes the difference between sort of maybe entrepreneurial mind thinking is that long-term vision. Like, where do I want to be in 10 years? What do I want this to look like? And so that you're consistently taking action towards it. And so I encourage it quite a bit. And it's okay if you don't hit them all, but hey, if you hit five out of 10, you're doing great, right? And so to make sure you're going in the right direction. And they can change over time because you change as a person, things, you know, the market changes, so forth. But I think it's really critical. And I often do say, say it out loud because then you're, you know, you're more likely to follow through. So I, I often brazenly say these out loud. And like, for instance, a few years ago, I said, I'm going to write a book. And then my employees, when we'd have these check-ins, they're like, have you started writing that book yet? When are you going to get that book done? So I'm 50,000 words in as of today. So, really? Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. So That's there's great. another like, yeah, I said it out loud and then they're holding me accountable. You know, so yeah. I think it's really important to have a vision and to set some goals and it's okay if you don't hit them all. Yeah. You know, I think what, one of the big focuses we're, we're going to be working on this coming year is kind of how can, how can business owners get the most if they want to sell their company? What's going to change the multiple? What's going to make it attractive to whether it's private equity funds or family offices or corporate M&A firms or stuff like this. And I think one of the things that I, I think everybody would, would benefit from your expertise on is when you think about just countless installations you've done across all sorts of sectors, how has that helped you come make something attractive for like a Purina or one of these, these big corporates you've done stuff for? How does it make it attractive? You know, a little bit of it is our process. So it's sort of sometimes not the sexy part of things. It's how we operate. It's operational, but it makes sure that we're listening to the client, that we're hitting their budgets, that we're hitting their schedule. And then there is the whole creative side, but it's, it's run under a process. And then our goal, our mission is to create inspiring exhibits. And, you know, our vision is to, you know, change the people's lives through our, our exhibits and inspire them. And that can be as simple as, you know, I'm going to plant a milkweed to help butterflies or, you know, or Purina. I'm going to buy Purina, <laughs> whatever yeah. it might be. So uh, for us, we're very, we call ourselves a combination of art and business. And the process side, I think, can give our clients comfort and ease that we're going to come through for them. We're going to stand behind our product. You're going to get something creative. We want the same thing you want. We want to inspire your visitors. So did I answer the yeah. question? Yeah. No, I, I think that's great information. I think maybe to drill down on it a bit more, I think about 
you know, let's say there's somebody listening to the show. They're thinking about selling their business some point in the next next few years, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're looking around saying like, I've worked so hard to generate the revenue for our business. Mm-hmm. And and we've I've been able to make this business attractive for customers. At some point here, I may need to take some actions to make it even more attractive to a buyer, mm-hmm. to somebody who wants to buy this company so I can, you know, spend some more time on some beaches or something, right? Right. Uh-huh. And so I think about like, you know, like I said, I, I have been able to do maybe a bit more traveling than average individual. And and there's really something presentation-wise about some locations when you go to them for businesses. And I think if you had just a few principles to think through, like if somebody is, you know, maybe they've got a manufacturing organization, maybe they've got an industry that's a little less sexy, right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And rethinking, hey, what is the what is the experience when when customers or potential acquirers come in our door for the first time? How could our lobby be telling our story? How you know, other than just putting up a few pictures and a plaque? Like, can you can you talk through maybe just any of your methodologies for those of us that want it to be more of an experience when somebody comes in the front door? Yeah, you know, we use what's called an interpretive approach. So we would work really closely with the client because it really is their story. And but we would help them get to a central theme. And then we basically tell that story in 3D. So it is each client is different, but we have a whole way of getting narrowing it down to the central theme storylines and, you know, sub stories. And then you bring that to life in 3D. And so it's really an individual company story or museum story or historic story that, and it's really critical. It's almost like a mission for a company. You know, you've got to narrow it down and then you've got to live under that. And so that you don't bring in something uh, peripheral that isn't going to impact the visitors that walk into your space. So narrowing it down to your central theme, what is the core story that you've got to put out for the public? Yeah. And I, I guess right there, as I'm thinking like, what what would be your expert advice if if I'm a business I'm thinking about selling the company at some point and I want to tell the story of our past I want to tell I want to tell how we got here but mm-hmm. I also want to I'm also maybe even more so want to inspire the story of our future which mm-hmm. is obviously hypothetical in some ways but when you think about that doing both of of a a company telling telling their past and and really trying to tell the story of of their trajectory going forward, how would you navigate that? Or how would you help make people decisions about what is this 3D storytelling? <laughs> right. And I do like think that. sort of that foundational, like if you're going to be a buyer of company, that foundational piece of where you're at as a company, what is your clientele? What are your resources? So it is some of the past, like what is your reputation? And so that's that historic story, right? And and like where you're at today and how that is going to you know help the trajectory to grow in the future. And so I think it's just establishing the excitement about the vision of the company. So we tell that foundation, like we got a great base here. We know how to operate. We have a great leadership team. We have, here's what we've accomplished. Like for us, we've done over 700 projects in the last 29 years in 44 states and four countries. You know, that brings some comfort, right? To, yeah, they've got this great base. So where are they going? And once again, we'd have to meet with each individual client and dig that vision out and then portray it in, in 3D. And and obviously, I recommend anybody who's really serious about this give you a call right? and do yeah. that. And tell us your tell us the website for Taylor Studios. It's a www.taylorstudios.com. Pretty easy. Yeah, please go check it out. Yeah. Um, the the our work section has got some great photos, by the way, of just all these cool things and endless clients you've got on here. Yeah, um, I think the other thing about 
about telling that story in 3D, even for this independent living center we did it for. It also just brings pride to your staff and tells maybe new staff the story that they didn't know. And so maybe it will help your recruiting, you know, it just brings enthusiasm to what this company stands for, right? And so it's, it's not only about selling, but it's also about hiring the best people and having some excitement about who you are as a company. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, certainly with this kind of new theme we're, we're working on this year a bit, we're talking about what does it take to be magnetic to buyers mm -hmm. who might buy the whole company from you? Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean we have to, we get to let the foot off the gas on being magnetic to customers and magnetic to top talent, right? Right, exactly. So maybe to revisit this a little bit, if you know somebody isn't in a position to hire you and you're just trying to give your best advice here today on how they can do it for themselves, they're, as they're trying to navigate this, the past and the future, what, what advice would you have for them? In relation to potentially selling their company? No, in, re in relation to, I want to do something in our lobby that just it's, inspires our customers, our staff, and a potential buyer. And mm -hmm. I want to, I want to be standing on the shoulders of our past and I want it to, I want it to like tell the story of why our future looks so bright. How would you navigate cover, covering both of those and having them work together as a storyteller? Yeah, it's, it's once again, it's that interpretive approach. It's really, we're going to come and have a workshop with you and we're going to dig that out of you, what that central theme is and that those storylines that are really important to bring to life. Maybe you have some artifacts and some photos that we can show some of the history. Maybe you have some branding, maybe you've done a strategic vision plan and you know we can use that for the future. It's really every client is going to be an individual. And so it's working with our staff through the process of interpretation is what we call it to, to bring that story to life. Yeah. How, how long are those events that you guys do? You know, this year it's been weird because of COVID, but often we'll go on site for over three days. Like we'll get the central theme, sub themes down, and then we'll go off site, maybe do some concept drawings, bring those back another day. So it can be, you know, three to three days, maybe even longer to to get that base done. You know, it's interesting you bringing up artifacts. You know, I think museums, art galleries, stuff like that, artifacts comes to mind immediately. But thinking about corporate installations, I don't know that it would have been the first thing to jump off the page on me, at me. Mm -hmm. And yet there's something special about the real thing instead of the picture of the real thing, right? Right, absolutely, yeah. I bet most companies have artifacts laying around and they don't even know it, you know? Whether it's a first product or a first brochure, photographs of founders, or it's probably sitting in their closet. And, <laughs> and yeah. some companies actually have a collection. So we've, we, we didn't win the job, but we presented at a bank and they had, they had written a memoir and they had collected all kinds of documents and stuff from the history of the bank. So I bet most companies have some of that. So it actually makes me think there's this, there's this great seafood restaurant in Salt Lake City that they bought an old Ford dealership from the 20s. And that's what the restaurant is in. Cool. And in the, in the restroom of all places, they've got a letter from one of the clients to the Ford dealership. It's written like 19, you know, 1923 or 1943 or something. I can't remember how old it is, but it's like, it's the original letter from all that time ago. And it's saying, you know, I enjoyed the service and we'll recommend you, you know, and it was just, just some random like customer thank you letter, but it was like, you know, 80 years but old. You found it really cool. Right. So yeah. And I remember that, it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's memorable. Exactly. 
It wasn't just like a marketing gimmick. It was something real, you know? Right. It's authentic telling their, their story. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that bank for a minute. You know, sometimes I think bankers get a reputation of not necessarily being the most creative of all personalities, right? Uh Maybe a little more into the rules sometimes. So when you're working with somebody like that and you're going through this interpretive experience, what does that, what does that look like with a bank? Yeah. You know, that particular job, we actually didn't win it. So we proposed on the jobs. I just remember mm. it because we went there and they had a collections person on staff. They had actually oh, a okay. historian on staff, but I would say yeah. like the assisted living center is maybe not quite like a bank, but, but serious, you know, it's not, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not telling a prehistoric story or something like that. And, and really they were energetic. They really were into their history and their story. And we were able to get that out of the committee that they put on this, this history wall that we created. And so I think you'd be surprised at how enthusiastic and energetic because that people are in, in telling their, their company stories. So then we know we might have them go find some resources. So we'll help them do that. Like how to go find those, that piece of paper you found in the bathroom or somebody there will remember those things. So, yeah. Well, I guess my question is if the, if you've got somebody who is enthusiastic to tell our company story and, and to make it 3d, what are the questions you're asking them? Like this assisted living, what did you ask them that helped them realize something they didn't know already? Or how do you help them narrow down the vision or what, what are, what are you doing? If they're already enthusiastic, what are you doing that they can't do without you? Yeah. And you know, I'm not the interpreter here. I'm the CEO. So she would be much better at answering this, but it's sort of, it's sort of like what is important to your visitors. What are you trying to get across here? It's sort of like what you do when you establish a company mission, right? But this is for a particular project. And so we're asking the right questions and, and a, a central theme isn't just a statement, you know, it's got a point of view, it's got to be relevant, it's emotional. And so we make sure those things are in there so that it's just not dry content and that it's an emotional, relevant, central theme with a point of view. And sometimes getting a point of view is difficult because people want to be politically correct and, you know, maybe not risk saying something that's their point of view, but it's, it helps really guide the project. To, to narrow it down like that. And they don't have to be published, but it will drive the rest of the process around the project. And yeah. I, I think it's surprisingly just that our process does get this story out that they can't do themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So let's talk about any other corporate clients. So like you did one for Purina, is that right? We did. Yeah. What, what did you guys do for them? They have um, a farm where they have events and stuff like dog shows and, and that kind of thing. So it was uh, more talking about the their, their, their products and what's in them and all the research that they did and why it's so good. And it was just kind of fun too. Like there's this enlarged dog with a photo op so the kids can come take pictures. And so it's an opportunity that people that come to this farm for all these dog events can know a little bit more about the inside of Perina. When we recently did one for Princess Cruise Lines also, that was at one of their lodges near Denali. And so they had a different goal. And so every client has a different goal. So that that client, people, it's called, you know, what is it called? The Noceum Club or like only a small percentage of the people actually see the mountain because it's often covered by clouds. So when their visitors were at this lodge, a lot of them wouldn't see it. And they're all like sitting in the windows trying to catch the view of the mountain. And so they wanted them to be entertained and find things interesting while they're at the lodge when the mountain is not out. 
And so some of that was history, some of that was theatrical. We told stories of the mountain climber and we had we had a female mountain climber that was sort of like the Sherpa, who she was like a hundred pounds soaking wet, but would carry the men's packs. You know, I mean, she just was bad. Wow. <laughs> and so we created an area where they could give events and tell that story and bring those people in, gave them some history of the lodge. And so it was sort of sort of entertainment when the mountain wasn't out. So those people had something to do during those times. So every client also has a different goal of what, what they're yeah. trying to achieve with these exhibits. And so even though that one was still, again, a history wall, there was a whole nother area where we themed out, you know, a theatrical experience with some rock and there's a plane and, and just a setting for them to have these experiences that they would create too. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. You know, shifting gears, I want to talk more about business and specifically business with creative people. You know, you, <laughs> you went and got your MBA, you're running the show, but, but you've got a whole, obviously all sorts of creative people doing all this work. Um, when you think about when you think about building a business that can run as a system, you know this is one of the things I think. With my art school dropout background and our you know our consulting firm, we've got a number of advertising agency CEOs and stuff that that we do strategy consulting for and things. And there can be a real struggle sometimes to have a duplicatable process to sell because with people very creative, there can almost be a tendency to like you know, to want to do everything from scratch every time. Can yeah. you talk about, can you talk about this idea of, you know, where you guys, every customer is different and you are do, yeah. doing something different then, but you also need a repeatable business model. Can you talk about how you've navigated that? Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's interesting over the years, you know, being a business person and I've already kind of surrounded myself with artists. So sometimes it's like, ah, because <laughs> we think different, right? You know, I'm logical and analytical and process oriented and to get them on board, you kind of have to to get the buy-in. So, I mean, just over the years, we've developed all these processes, even though almost everything we create is unique. There are some consistent things like, you know, there's often a reader rail or a flip panel. And so some things we standardize, but even though they'll look different for every client. So we bought some standardized things in and, and the pitch is, you know, you'll, you get to add the flair on the unique things for this client. Cause that's the artists do. They want to keep going. And we do have to constantly watch that because, you know, one of our, our, one of our we we operate under core values and one of them is profitability and it's probably in there because artists will just you know keep adding and adding and adding and so we have time goals we have project boards we have a visual workplace and and so they operate under all those processes and some and some standardization of some things and so we've just built that over the last 30 years all these processes and all you know what i learned is Artists don't really want everything open. Honestly, sometimes they want to work within a box. And that can be the creative part is like, what can I do within this box? That's just kick-ass and cool. And so sometimes the parameters, they've operated better under the parameters than, than blue sky thinking. And in the beginning, I didn't want to put them in a box because they're artists. But I think it's actually helped in a lot of ways to achieve the goals for our clients. And they do have to realize we're making this for our clients. This isn't personal art where you can just keep going and going and going. So we are a very process-oriented company, but still are artistic. Yeah. So you think about 29 years of doing this. If, if there's another business owner listening who has a whole bunch of creatives in their company, if you had any guidance for them of helping them think through maybe making some more pro some more 
processes without stifling their creative people? What advice would you have? I think, you know, it's important to get the buy-in of the people. So if you're creating a process, if you can get the team members to be a part of that and help help in creating it, I think that's very beneficial. And they often have great ideas to add to that process. So getting buy-in is, is critical. And what does yeah. that look like for you? Do you get around the boardroom table with some pizzas or post-it notes and whiteboard? Or what is that? Is it just a series of conversations? What does that look like? Yeah, you know, it depends. We have different committees for things. Like right now, Jason, my creative director, has a committee to do some standardization in the shop. Like, here's how we normally make a tree. And and those processes can change because like we we did a tree for the Cleveland Art Museum this year that was completely different. But at least if it's like a tree that we've done repeatedly, here's the process. And so he's getting our head of structures, one of our artists, to be on that committee to go, okay, here's here's the process. Here's how we're going to mold the tree. Here's how we're going to cast it. But he's part of setting that standard. And then we have our construction detailer because then he'll do the drawings. That is our normal standard. But we're also letting them know because, you know, not every tree is the same, that you know, this is what you're going to follow if we do our, our typical approach. And he's part of creating those standards on the shop floor. So he's on that committee. So he gets say. And, and we're going to make sure that he goes around to the other artists on the floor and go, okay, here's what I'm saying. We're going to use this silicone. We're going to use this resin. Here are the steps. And, and some of it's good for them too, because as we bring in new people, if they have a guide, then they're not spending as much time right next to them all the time. They have something they can go to to refer to. So most of these people want to stay with the hands-on work instead of managing other people. And so that makes it easier to bring new people on board too. And they, they understand that. And so often it's committees like that. We pick a group of people that, okay, you tell us. You know, even even this year, like we created a work at home committee, like and even what is it what is it going to look like post COVID? So we put somebody from each department on that committee and said, make a proposal to leadership of what you want that to look like in the future. And so I think that's important. You know, I've certainly learned that, you know, if you don't get the buy in, it's going to be really hard to implement something, whether it's a new piece of software or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, I think that, I think that's great advice. It probably applies in every industry, right? You know, yeah. who, who doesn't want to be able to bring their brain to work too, instead of just be told what to do, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and usually it's you know, more creative and better anyway, right? When you got a wide group of people involved. Oh yeah. yeah. I, you know, we have a lot of guys from the special operations community on the show. And, and I tell you, it's interesting, my work across the Department of Defense in the last, you know, I guess, eight, nine years that I've, I've had consulting clients there, both at another firm and, and at our own. And the most elite organizations are almost an inverse of the most bureaucratic ones in the Department of Defense. They're like the most bureaucratics are these typical pyramid you would expect where it's like, you know, if they wanted you have a brain, they'd issued one at basic training, you know, like <laughs> you are the warm yeah. body to do what the Colonel wants. And I'm, I'm exaggerating here. Right. Yeah. But yeah. the like, you know, um, nobody takes an action until after the boss has said they wanted it done. You know, that's, that's the environment. Yeah. And then you look at the most elite organizations and it's almost like the pyramids upside down mm -hmm. and like the, the top officers and the leaders see it's like their job to make sure that the guys who are closest to the problem have, yeah. have the best equipment, have the highest level training with the most meaningful repetitions and, and the skill sets that they can actually trust those guys' opinions. And, you know, like our classified units of special ops, I mean, sometimes those guys go into countries without uniforms on a different passport with no oversight, no communications. They go do the whole operation by themselves with nobody. 
and, and come back. And, and in other organizations, there's a lot of like, there's this, you know, in the, in the army special operations world, it's cool to be an airborne ranger. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so their derogatory term term of the like micromanager officers is a chairborne ranger. (laughs) Uh Who's going to sit 3000 miles away and say, Oh, I don't know if you should pick that up or not. Cause he's watching you on a live video. You know, who's not there. He's not really getting the full picture. Right. Yeah. And yet those organizations that I have the most respect for that there's like this humility at the top to trust the people closest to the bottom. Now they take actions to give them comfort, giving that trust. You know, they've, Mm -hmm. they've done enough preparation to be able to trust that person, but it sounds like you've tried to implement a similar methodology in some ways. Yeah. As much as we can, you know, we have to support them in doing what they know how to do, but often a lot of these artists, they don't want to lead. So, you know, we have sent them off on installations and they've had to solve some, you know, Hey, the floor is unlevel or this happened. And they solve those kind of problems all the time. But if it's a client problem, then we have to have the project manager in because, you know, that that's where they get uncomfortable and just, you know, it's not their strength. And so it really is a cooperative team and people with different strengths have to jump in where needed to make it a smooth project. But, you know, my, my fabricators, they're always having to solve those kind of problems, especially on an installation, even though we've taken measurements and thought we've seen every fire alarm that's there, you know, inevitably there's going to be something that goes wrong. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like we got to measure doors because you got to get a whale through, you know, double doors and, you know, then all of a sudden you show up and there's this ramp that wasn't there before, you know? <laughs> so they're constantly problem solving on the fly on their, on their own. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a question that I had, I was listening to an interview you'd done with someone else and you talked about how in many ways your industry is is actually quite collaborative and that that you guys will do stuff with the competition and it's not that that it's it's it almost sounds like more of a friendly industry. Is that is that kind of a fair Oh, I think so. Yeah, it's not cutthroat. I think we're we're cheering each other on. We're competing too, but then there are times it's better when we combine forces and go in together. Yeah, it's it's a close knit industry. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and it sounds like people have such a passion. They stay in the industry for a long time, probably develop strong friendships. They're not in this and out to the next thing three years later. And it sounds like there's people who get in it and stay in it for the long term. Is that fair? Yeah. You know, even the other companies that we work with, it's funny. I'll see an employee that worked at the at DNP for five years and now they're over here at X plus and now they're at Malpe. And so you're right. Yeah. So a lot of people fall in love and just stay in the industry. And I have like five employees that have been with the company over 20 years. So even here, you know, it's, it's, it's unique work. It's, you know, we're, we're doing an inspirational product that, you know, so it's, it's rewarding in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts, you know, in, in your industry, which admittedly, I only have the one friend and, and he was outside success and, and sold the company actually in the last couple of years did very well from it, but I really don't know that much more about it as a space. So when owners, you know, when, when owners are eventually done, however many decades they're in and they're like, okay, it's time to sell the business. Uh-huh. Uh, what do you feel like makes those companies worth more either when they're selling it to employees or somebody else? What do you feel like in your space makes, makes a practice more attractive to a buyer? Yeah, I'm not sure that it's much different than it would be in other spaces, right? You have to have a really good leadership team, good operational structure, good clientele, good reputation, you know, those processes in place already that it's operating really well. 
I think, you know, just like maybe any industry, if there's a, another company that wants to diversify the revenue streams and they don't do what you do, that's obviously a great opportunity for them. You know, booked work, how many, you know, what, what, do, what do you already have under contract is going to be, you know, viable for sure. So I think it's probably pretty similar, wouldn't you say? You would, you may know better than me, but I mean, you just got to have a good leadership team, good people, good processes, great equipment. You know, for us, you know, I think one thing that might be enticing is we are in central Illinois, so our cost of labor is a little bit lower. And versus if we were in downtown Chicago or a lot of our competition is in urban environments and we're in a smaller environment. So that's, you know, if they wanted to diversify, they could have a lower cost of labor base here, but it's a great place to live in Champaign-Urbana. There's university and it's a cool town and we're, we're within a, you know, hour and a half of Indianapolis, two hours of Chicago. So you could get to large cities fairly quickly. Easy logistics because we're in the, the middle of the country. So there's several interstates coming through here. It's easy to get all over the country from here. The cost of buildings are way less expensive than they are in urban environments. So, of course, you got to look at the PL and the balance sheet and all those things to make it a viable buy. Yeah, it is. You know, I think about what Warren Buffett says about being the low cost producer. You know, you think about these businesses that are highly defensible, like an extreme example is a Walmart. When they can actually, when they can actually sell products then che- for cheaper than some of the competitors can even buy them in the first place, you yeah. know, because they figured out that structural cost advantage. Do you know what I mean like that? That's mm-hmm. an in, that's an enduring advantage. Something like that, right? Yeah, and and I think every company will have their their foundational things that are different. And we have been very frugal. We're very much about keeping our overhead low. We can, you know, it's like we can give you more exhibit for your dollar because of that. So that's one of our operational tendencies. And so would a potential buyer, would that intrigue them? You know, it depends on who the buyer is, right? It's operational Um, effectiveness in a, in a way. Yeah, absolutely. So Mm -hmm. in your space, you know, over 29 years, I'm sure you've seen some businesses change hands or, or things like that. Yeah. When you think about, you know, a competitor, somebody else in a related, you know, in your world, where the business has changed hands. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the ones where you think, man, maybe that that owner didn't prepare as well as they could have, or or you man, I I think they, you know, I think that maybe caught them off guard, or like what what mistakes have you seen other folks in the space do that maybe they could have prepared better for? Yeah, you know, because I don't have an inside view of, of their finances, I'm not sure. So there's a recent competitor that did an ESOP, so he didn't sell. Okay. Yeah, and so well, maybe, same thing, it's employee yeah, sale. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah. And so I don't know. I wonder if part of it is, is having that long-term plan, knowing that you got to have a succession plan. What's your exit strategy? I would say a lot that maybe didn't get the most that they could is because all of a sudden they're like, I'm 75. I better sell this place. I had, I had a, a, colleague in the industry that he made these figures, unlike ours, his were the low cost, ours are high quality. And uh, I was in Baltimore for a project and he's like, can I have dinner with you? And he was like 70 and maybe I was 35 at the time, 40 maybe. And he's like, how do I do my succession plan? And I looked at him like, you should have thought about that 10 years ago. (laughs) You've got to plan it, right? And be prepared for it. And so I would say that might be a mistake that people would make. You know, I'm interested in that one because there's so many folks, especially at that kind of an age where exit sounds like, man, maybe life is over. And, and, you know, this has been my whole identity. I don't know if I really want out and yeah. what am I going to do anyways? And, you know, and any thoughts of the, like, just the mental approach of like how this could feel like more of a transition than an, than an exit or more like, 
how could this be like moving on to the next adventure instead of just my identity being over or something? Yeah, right. After you've run a business for 30 some years, he he was able, by the way, to sell it to two employees and they're they're doing great. So he did figure it out. So oh, that's good. Him, that's good good to hear. Yeah. And he's he's enjoying life. And I do think as a, a as an entrepreneur owner, you know, you do you you got to have life outside of your business. You know, you got to have a reason to want to leave the business every now and then or or that could be a major problem. Right. So I have I love horses and the outdoors and travel. So you know, I've been able to, you know, put business out of my mind by getting out on a horse. So I would encourage business owners to not only live their business, but have some diversity in what they do. Maybe it's volunteering. I've been on several boards. So they've got to think about what life would look like outside of the business and have some passions outside of the business. I think that can also bring creativity and passion back into the business versus if your whole life is 24-7, the business. So I would encourage that so that transition isn't as difficult as it might be. Yeah. You know, by the way, I, I, I totally plan on using you as an example. My 16 year old daughter loves horses so much. <laughs> and so I, I was listening to one of your interviews where you talked about that the more you looked into the horse industry, the more you thought, I'm going to go get a business degree so that I can <laughs> right. own the horse instead of be broke, you know, right? Yeah. And, uh, I want to help her buy like commercial real estate and these kind of things so that she can afford to do what she wants with the horses instead of what the owners want done with the horses. Right. 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 She doesn't want to live in someone else's barn so she can ride the horse. She wants to own her horses. <laughs> right. Yes. Encourage that. Yeah. Because also, you know, if I had turned horses into a job, you know, I did that a little bit in college. I worked for a guy with the horses and there were actually moments where I didn't want to go to the barn so, because, oh, I got to do this again. You know, and so sometimes it's not right to turn your hobby into a business. So I'm glad I, I didn't go down that path. Plus, I own my yeah. own barn now instead of living someone else's. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Congratulations. Yeah. So thinking about this idea of, I guess my next question is, I feel like you brought up such a good point of, man, you need to start thinking about that succession planning 10 years ago, right? Right. And and yet we always have a a customer fire that needs to put out be put out or an employee situation that needs to get handled. And those things, I mean, they yell at us like a fire alarm. They're like a ringing phone. And yet something this important, you know, it's urgent eventually, but it's, maybe it doesn't, maybe it's not urgent today. So I'm interested mm-hmm. in any thoughts you have of for for business owners in general, of like, you know, succession planning, it feels like in the future, it's easy to put off. Any thoughts on how to get ourselves to to be thinking ahead? Yeah. Have you ever seen that Stephen Covey box where it's like urgent, important, not important, urgent? Well, I mean, it's kind of like that, right? It's it is important, even though it's not urgent. It's sort of like strategic planning or vision setting or where are you going to be in 10 years? It's what I was talking about before and setting your goals. So it's, it's that. And so you've got to find the time, like you find yeah, you know, strategic planning. We're going to, this, this year, we're starting a, a membership group for business buyers and business owners mm-hmm. and, and try and like maybe start some of those relationships earlier than they're needed and help business, help business owners think through some of this stuff and help business and, and actually know what business buyers are wanting to buy and help business owners know what business owners are thinking and maybe you know, get in on those before their competitors can buy them or something, you know, right. We're going to try and build a relationship like that. Right. And as you're saying that it makes me think like in our, in the business owner groups, we should totally have some sort of like annual thing where the people in their mastermind, it's like, okay, it's January again. Let's think succession planning, whether it's this year or it's in a decade from now or two decades from now, let's, you know, let's put it on the calendar because 
it's it's so procrastinatable. I don't right. think that's a word, yeah. but I just used it anyway. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. But it, you know, it's sort of like people that don't have wills. Like, have you thought this through for your family? You know, it's an important thing. And so, you know, it, I used to be in the Vistage organization. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Yeah, of course. And so, you know, that that was always an encouragement. Make sure you you have your will. We have what we call I, I call it the drool plan and the death plan. And actually having those conversations with your leadership team, those maybe it's really difficult around the dinner table conversation with a family, but just so there aren't surprises also like, no, your spouse won't get the company car if you die, you know, and so that there's no surprises or more in, in a, hold on, will you back up? Yeah. Will you define the death program and the drool program? Sure. Well, the death is, and I've had each of my leadership team do this, like who's going to do what if you die? Give me your plan. And so in that, when we look, we try to look at it every year, maybe a couple of times I've skipped it and it's been every two years, but I have my leadership team think about that too. So Molly- is that a set, sorry to interrupt. Is that a set thing? Hey, we do this every July or is it just, oh, I remember to do that or what, how do you- Yeah, I do kind of just remember to do it and I'll go look at the file and go, oh, it's time to do it. We talk about it, you know, I think around strategic planning, it, that's when my mind goes, oh, we got to do that again too. And then, yeah. And so I have each leadership team tell me who in your department is going to take over what you're going to do or, or another one of us leaders. And we all think about it and talk about it if somebody gets hit by a bus tomorrow so that we don't have, you know, I think all that contingency planning, whether it's this or, you know, we've, we've gone, well, what if we lose this customer when they were the big egg that year and we lost the customer one year. And if we hadn't gone and sat down as a leadership team and go, here's the step-by-step thing we'll do if we lose this customer you know, it, it could have hit us like a freight truck, but because we were having those conversations, it made our planning and it's, you know, the best leadership is the leadership that can lead in a crisis, right? And so planning is kind to your staff and shows that you care, that you've planned through these things. You know, that's interesting to think about it as like a personal responsibility thing of like, right. if I really care about these staff, like, you know, I, I've got a lot of broken bones and scars from action sports, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And so, you know, thinking about, uh, and I just want to clarify, is the drool program, if I like get paralyzed riding my dirt bike, is that the drool plan? So yeah, I fall off the horse and I can't walk for six months or I'm not viable. And so then we have different, like, well, how, how long will we hold the position for you? When does such and such kick in? And we have a disability uh, insurance and stuff, but it's also talking that through. So I had a friend that owned a company and she got cancer and, but she was able to operate some throughout that, but, you know, so things like that, what would we do if, if it was, you know, you're out for six months, you're out for a year. Yeah. So that's the drool plan. (laughs) I I love it. Uh, I think, you know, for some people it could be morbid or they could want to avoid conversations like this, but for me, I like what you said about it's kind to our teams, Yeah, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and probably to our, our families and, you know, and our families having to interact with the team and right. the, you know what I mean? Like, you know, maybe there's people on my team that have never dealt with my spouse before. And now all of a sudden what's, what's going on? How's it going to get handled? How does that get navigated in the middle of grief or stuff like that? You right. know, and you know, they're having to handle hundred percent of that because I didn't want to, I didn't want to, yeah. I didn't want to ask some hard questions and some uncomfortable conversations. Right. Right. Yeah. You got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think the planning, I mean, it's caring. And so maybe if you look at it that way, this is an important thing for you to do. And you are, it's, it is a responsibility to plan like this for your people. Right. 
Well, and I thought about the employee thing too of, you know, there's so many, I used to be on a mergers and acquisitions team for Citigroup back 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I used to call these CEOs, we did mid-market, so under $500 million a year businesses, right? And I'd call these companies and I'd say, hey, I'm calling from Citi. We have some private equity groups that might be interested in in a company kind of like yours. We don't know exactly, but, you know, have you you ever thought about selling? You're going to give it to the kids? What are you thinking? And I can't tell you how many times it'd be like, you know, Jess, I've just been so busy running the business for 35 years. I just, I probably haven't put as much thought into it as I should. And I kind of thought I'd give it to the kids, but honestly, I kind of, nowadays, I'm not sure that's actually is, that's actually too viable. And, mm-hmm. and I'm like, this wow. is your single biggest asset. And you haven't thought it far. You got to have 90% of your net worth, 80% of your net worth is tied up in this thing. Right. And, but it's not the ringing phone. So yeah. it doesn't have to get dealt with. And, and it hadn't been, and I call them, you know, owner after owner. That would wow. be the story, right? Isn't that and shocking when you think about it? I mean, that is it, it 80, isn't, 80% of your wealth and you haven't thought about its future? <laughs> well, it is and it isn't because I'm sure they thought about it and they heard, well, my buddy sold and he got five times. I bet I could get that too, I'm guessing, you know, but but there just hasn't but they just haven't put the work into it. They haven't realized like, oh, and the buddy had to clean up his books for like 24 months in order to have the kind of books yeah. that's going to pass due diligence. And right. there had to, you know, all those hard conversations you're talking about with a death plan and the drool plan, <laughs> you know, having all that instituted and the processes documented and all this stuff yeah. means instead of getting like, you know, if, if people in my industry get two times to six times and I want closer to six than two, right? documented processes, cleaned up books, yep. Mm-hmm. A, a realistic program of, of how the business isn't just going to run without the ownership. It's going to grow without the ownership because mm-hmm. you can bet the new guys, you know, if you're, if you're a business of any size, the new guys are probably an investor. They don't want to, they're not trying to buy a job. If you're, if you're a decent sized business, right. Uh-huh. They want something mm-hmm. that can run. And like you said, those are all things they should have been thinking about 10 years ago. You know? Right. Yeah. And I think that's important documenting the operations. That's a big push for us now, too, is um, we have a knowledge base and, you know, even we're adding videos and those kind of things to document all the operations. Can you can you tell me about that? I am. Um... I, I don't know if you know Paul Akers and his book, Two Second Lean, but he's all about operational excellence. They they make all their staff do iPhone videos of everything, every time they improve something. So it's like they have a whole video library of training how to work here because mm-hmm. it's all the improvements everybody made. We're not there oh, really? yet, but that's the goal. Yeah, is to- I would love to know what you guys have done so far. Yeah, you know, we've just, so we we had to find the software that would work. And so we just found that a year ago and it's just, it's SharePoint. So it's pretty straightforward, but, you know, we thought about like, what is searchable, you know, because if you want to search for lessons learned on Stars Cave, you know, you want to be able to search that because we do lesson learned meetings too. And so those are all documented. So I haven't got into- So you, you film them? You film your lessons? No, we haven't learned? yet. So what I think- okay. What we're doing now, like Molly is the head of my um, PM department. So anytime she's talking about a procedure or standard, she has started to film it. We filmed all our strategic planning meetings. So those are there, but I haven't done it to the degree that I want yet. So somebody's welding in the shop, you know, let's get a video of that. Somebody's molding somebody, let's get a video of that. And we do have some of that video. We just haven't yet put it in the knowledge base. And so some of that, we've got to go find our artifacts <laughs> and put them in the knowledge base and develop that system. So it's it's right now we're taking all the processes we have written as a company and reorganizing them, reviewing them, putting them in there. And then the next step will be to continue to add things like video and, and that kind of stuff. So, we're, so right now, it's mostly the processes we already and standards we already have written and getting them organized into this new database. 
Yeah, I love that. But um, the goal is like, you know, think about that. Like if you're out there welding a tree or molding something, sometimes, you know, some of these projects we do, it's, you know, once a year. So you've got, you know, if we can get out there and be consistent in taking the videos, bringing on a new artist will be much easier. <laughs> I think it's the first conversation I've ever had where somebody talked about both casting a tree and welding a tree in the same conversation. <laughs> it takes both. <laughs> so if you, if you're not a book person and I'm, I'm an audiobook guy, two second lean is great. But the other thing is go to his YouTube channel. It's fast cap. Okay. His name is Paul Akers, A-K-E-R-S, I think. And uh, he goes and does these these studio, uh, the, these like factory tours of his own factory. And he goes around to all his employees. What did you invent this year? What does that look like? What, you know, and you really get this like vision of what it looks like. And it's not cool. all like engineering and, and anyways, it's just, it's very accessible. You can see like, oh yeah, any of my staff could do that. And it's not all on him, you know, so for yeah, what it's worth. I like might, it. Yeah. Might be worth checking that one out. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, I know we've covered a few things here and, and over 29 years, I know you'd have a lot more you could share, but, but maybe to end here, what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? You know, I think, um, I think just like if you asked one of my employees, what was your favorite project? Everybody has a different answer, right? Cause it's personal. And you know, so for me, it was quit beating yourself up. You know, it's, a, it's that critic, you know, now that I'm writing the book, you know, that's popping in a lot. Oh, this isn't good. And so I had a coach that, you know, caught me doing that, which isn't helpful to anybody. It's not helpful to my staff. It's not helpful to be a leader, to be too hard on myself. So that was really, you know, for me, that was really good advice. I love it. Well, thanks for spending the time with us here today. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, everybody, please go check out taylorstudios.com. Thanks so much.